When it comes to the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Trinity is the most difficult doctrine for Christians to understand. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to understand that the doctrine of the Trinity, it's based on the belief that there is one God, and this one God has revealed himself as three co-equal persons who eternally exist in the divine distinctions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And being that our finite minds find it difficult to grasp the idea that one God can eternally exist in three persons, uh, many people have set out to explain the triune nature of God by attempting to compare the Godhead to different finite things. For example, there's the three-leaf clover. It's one leaf, but it has you know, three leaves, and so it's three in one. And then, and then people point to the triangle and say, well, it's one object, but it's got three corners, and, and so like the trinity. And, and then there's the people who point at the, the egg, and they point to the, to the yolk, and then the whites, and, and then the shell. And, 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 and yeah, these all fail. Every analogy ends up failing. And the reason why is because God is an infinite being who can't be compared to anything that is finite. Now when it comes to the Trinity, we have to understand that this was a term that was first used of God by the Bishop of Antioch more than a hundred years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in his letter to a man named Autolycus when Theophilus of Antioch set out to present a clear explanation as well as a defense for the Christian faith. And his letter included a very simple statement about the triune nature of God. And he mentions God and his word, which is a reference to the Son, as well as his wisdom, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And while the definitive doctrine of the Trinity wouldn't be clearly codified until the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, we can still rejoice in knowing that the doctrine of the Trinity was already there in the scriptures before that 4th century council. You see, the God of the Bible had already provided us with the testimony of his triunity so that the church fathers could come along after the fact and and take the theological information that is found there and, and then identify the triune nature of our creator who has revealed himself in the Bible as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here in our text today, we find Luke. He's reminding his readers about the day when Jesus received the baptism of John. And as we make our way through Luke's uh, account of our Savior's baptism, we're also going to spend some time considering how our triune God has confirmed the messianic calling of Christ Jesus. And as we make our way through the verses before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the testimony of the Trinity includes the revelation of the Spirit. Secondly, we'll learn that the testimony of the Trinity includes the confirmation of the Father. Uh, Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the testimony of the Trinity includes the submission of the Son. With this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Here we find Luke. He's recounting the day when the Lord Jesus was baptized into water by John the Baptist. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Luke's gospel account, I want to take a moment to set the stage for our study today. And I want to do this by addressing a common question that many, many people have regarding the baptism of Jesus. One common question that has baffled many believers throughout the years is this. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? 
Now, if this is something that you've ever wondered about, then you'll be happy to know that we're actually going to spend uh, some time today considering several reasons for why it was necessary for Jesus to receive the baptism of John. And the first reason, well, it was for the purpose of spiritual revelation. In order to explain what I mean, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 3, I want to begin reading here at verse 21 where Luke writes, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now here in these verses we find Luke, he's recounting the events that occurred on the day when Jesus was baptized by John into water. And as we begin to tackle this question, why did Jesus need to be baptized in water, we must not fail to notice that all three persons of the triune Godhead took part in this incredible event. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to remember that the God of the Bible has revealed himself as a triune being, as I pointed out in our introduction. The God of the Bible tells us that he eternally exists in the divine persons of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while we don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, what we do find is a basis for believing in this triune God. And in order to prove my point, let's take some time to examine the biblical building blocks of this difficult doctrine. And with this as the goal, I want to begin by first asking the question, how many gods are there? How many gods are there? I mean, the Bible says many things about the gods, and there's gods, and, 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 and you know, there, there's many ideas of, of, of different gods throughout the scriptures. But I first want to consider a statement that God presented through the prophet Isaiah. And so if you would hold your place here in Luke chapter 3, let's turn to the 43rd chapter of Isaiah. And as you make your way to Isaiah chapter 43, I want to take a moment to point out that the Bible's filled with stories about gods. It's filled with stories about pagan gods worshipped by pagans all throughout the nations. For example, the Canaanites, they worshipped a god named Baal. And the Moabites worshipped the god Chemosh. The Philistines venerated their deity known as Dagon. And the Babylonians worshipped a god known as Marduk. The Ammonites, they worshipped a murderous monstrosity called Molech. And the Syrians bowed before their god Tammuz. And listen, this is just a short list of all the different gods who are mentioned throughout the Bible. Sadly, the people who worship these so-called gods, what they were failing to recognize is that they were serving lifeless idols at best. And at worst, they were actually worshipping fallen angels. In order to prove my point, let's begin looking here at Isaiah chapter 43. I want to draw your attention there to verse 10. Here the Lord declares, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Simply put, there's only one God. And therefore, all other beings that claim to be God, well, they're nothing more than false gods. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where he assures his audience that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes on to elaborate on this by insisting that the Gentiles were actually offering their sacrifices to demons and not to God. 
They were worshiping and serving demons who were masquerading as gods. Because there's only one true and living God. Moses confirms this after their exodus from Egypt. And I'll remind you that Egypt was a place that was filled with all kinds of gods. And after their exodus from this place, Egypt, which was filled with all these false gods, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 4 where Moses declares this. He says, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The Egyptians, they had all these gods that this god was over the sea and this god was over the mountains and this god was over the... They had all these different gods over these different areas and Moses saying, no, no, no. There's only one God and he is God of the entire earth and beyond. The Bible is perfectly clear that there's only one true and living God and therefore any other entity that claims to be a God is nothing more than a false God. While it's true that there is only one true and living God, It's also true that the God of the Bible has revealed himself as a triune being who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with this as the focus, I want to take a moment to consider the person of the Holy Spirit, who we sometimes refer to as the third person of the Trinity. And with this as the focus, if you would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, and I'd like you to turn in your Bible now to the first chapter of Genesis. I want you to turn to the first chapter of the Bible. And as you make your way to Genesis chapter 1, it's important for us to remember that the Bible is filled with verses that identify the God of Israel as being the creator of the heavens and the earth. And while I realize that there are many people in the world today who believe that the universe somehow began to exist on its own, we should be quick to remind those people about the fundamental maxim of all reason and science and philosophy And this maxim stems from the very simple statement, out of nothing, nothing comes. If I have nothing in my hand right here, how long do I have to wait before this becomes something? I'll be waiting forever. Because out of nothing, nothing will come. Listen, it's physically impossible for nothing to produce produce something. It's physically impossible for nothing to cause a finite universe like the one we live in to just spring into existence. And not only that, but it's philosophically untenable to insist that our finite universe just sprang into existence from an infinite nothingness. Because there is something today, there has to be an infinite something that caused it all. Therefore, it only stands to reason that our finite existence demands an uncaused infinite creator who decided to create the order and the complexity of the universe in which we exist. This, of course, includes the specific characteristics of our unique planet, which was specially designed to sustain life. And according to Moses, it's the Holy Spirit who was instrumental in making our planet habitable for the human race. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Genesis chapter 1. I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here Moses writes, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and so on and so forth as the creation account goes. 
But here in the first three verses of Genesis, we find Moses, he's identifying the God of the Bible as the creator who created the universe with a word. He spoke forth the existence of everything. And after God is speaking forth the existence of the entire universe, then he goes on to tell us that then the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, the Holy Spirit was sent to terraform the earth so that our unique little planet could sustain every form of life that the Lord was about to create on the days of creation. And so we see that God was creating. And while the Father was speaking forth existence, the Holy Spirit was hovering and helping to form the planet upon which we live. Now, with this imagery in mind, I'd like you to turn now back to Luke chapter 3, where we find Jesus being baptized into water. I want to draw your attention once again there to verse 21. Here Luke writes, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, uh, as we consider this scene once again, we must not fail to notice the glaring parallels between the baptism of Jesus and the creation account that's found back in Genesis chapter 1. Much like in Moses' creation account, we find God the Father here, he's speaking from the heavens. And back in Genesis, we see God the Father saying, let there be light, and there, and there was light. But now he's saying, here's my beloved son, the light of the world. Not only that, but back in Genesis, we found the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And where do we find the Holy Spirit here? Hovering over the waters, more specifically, over Jesus Christ, who was coming up out of the water after receiving water baptism. The Holy Spirit, once again, hovering over Jesus as he rose up from the Jordan River. And in this way, we see the Holy Spirit of God revealing the identity of our Messiah. In order to continue making my case, we should consider the baptism of Jesus from the account of the Apostle John. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn in our Bibles now to John chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of John's Gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that the Spirit of God was the one who led Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to create their individual Gospel accounts. And he did this in order to provide us with harmonious accounts of the same events as told from their own unique perspectives. And it's here in the Gospel of John where we find John's perspective of Jesus' baptism. But this has the focus, if you would look with me here at John chapter 1. I want to begin reading at verse 29. Here the apostle writes, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore... I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle John, he's recounting the way in which the Holy Spirit of God was manifest in the form of a dove in order to identify Jesus as the promised Messiah. In other words, the Holy Spirit provided John the Baptist with divine guidance 
And he did this by testifying to the fact that Jesus is indeed the one who was sent to save us from the wrath of God. And so we see that John was sent to baptize with water. Why? To reveal who the Messiah is. How? Well, he, you know, God told John to wait for the Holy Spirit to descend in the form of a dove on, 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 uh, on, on the Messiah. And in this way, the Spirit of God was enabling John the Baptist to then reveal the identity of our Redeemer. And so that's one reason why Jesus was baptized in water, so that John the Baptist could reveal him by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And while it's true that the Holy Spirit of God was sent to help John accomplish his calling by revealing the identity of our Messiah, it's also true that the Holy Spirit was also sent to help us so that we can continue walking in truth, the truth that sets us free. And this was precisely the point that Jesus was making in the 16th chapter of John. And so if you would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn now in our Bibles to the 16th chapter of John. As you make your way to John 16, I want to point out that it's here in this chapter where we find the Lord Jesus. He's describing the way that the Holy Spirit would be sent to help us by providing us with the ongoing revelation of truth, which has come from the mind of our triune God. Let's consider how Jesus puts it here in John chapter 16. Look with me there, beginning at verse 7, where Jesus declared, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my my father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Here in these verses, we find the risen Lord. He's, he's uh, uh, promising to send the Holy Spirit after his uh, ascension into heaven. And just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit was sent to reveal the glory of the Lord Jesus through the revelation of the written word so that we can receive the Spirit-inspired testimony by which God guides us into all truth. And it's for this reason that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. And the clearest proof of this is found in the books of the New Testament, which, I'll remind you, were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This was precisely the point that Peter was making in Second Peter chapter 1, where he assures his audience that the prophetic word of God didn't come by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul also weighs in on this in his second letter to Pastor Timothy. It's uh, there in... in uh, in, in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, where Paul declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Or in other words, the Spirit of God has inspired every word that we find in the Bible, and all of this was given to us so that we can know who the promised Messiah is. And what this means then is that the Holy Spirit of God was not only sent to reveal the identity of our Redeemer there at the baptism scene, 
But he was also sent on the day of Pentecost to provide godly guidance to those who would write the books of the New Testament. And in this way, the spirit of truth has helped to create the books of the Bible so that the divine identity of the Lord Jesus might continue to be revealed to those who humbly seek the Savior who was baptized there in the Jordan River. And not only that, but now the Holy Spirit also guides us into truth. He guides us into the truth about Jesus as we study his holy word because this is how he brings that conviction of sin that helps us to trust in Jesus Christ. And while it's true that the testimony of the Trinity includes the revelation of the Spirit, it's also true that the testimony of the Trinity, this includes the confirmation of the Father. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 3. Here we find Luke, he's drawing our attention to the testimony of God the Father. If you would, let's back up, let's look once again, beginning at verse 21. Here again, Luke writes, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Now, as we take a closer look at these verses, we must acknowledge the fact that Luke didn't explicitly identify the voice that came from heaven as coming from God the Father. Nowhere does he say here that the Father spoke from heaven, but rather just a voice came from heaven. At the same time, though, I would also point out that the statement, you are my beloved son, I mean, who would say that except the Father? He says, you are my beloved son. This carries with it the obvious implication that this is the voice of God the Father. And what this means then is that the divine identity of Jesus was not only revealed by the Holy Spirit of God who descended in the form of a dove, but then the testimony of the Spirit coming in the form of a dove confirms uh, the, the voice of God the Father. And then the Father then confirms the identity of the Holy Spirit and the Son. And listen, this isn't the only time that God the Father confirms the ministry of our Messiah. As a matter of fact, God the Father confirmed his approval of the Lord Jesus Christ while Jesus stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. With this as the focus, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 17. And as you make your way to the 17th 17th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I, I should take a moment to remind you that the transfiguration of Jesus occurred around 29 AD and This took place on the day when the Lord led Peter and James and John, the inner circle, up to the peak of a high mountain, and they were by themselves at the beginning. We don't really know which mountain this took place on. Some suggest Mount Hermon, others suggest Mount Tabor. We don't really know, but what we do know, it it was there on that unnamed mountain where God the Father showed up and confirmed Jesus as the Christ. Let's consider Matthew's account of this incredible event. If you would look with me here in Matthew chapter 17, I want to begin reading at verse 2 where we learn that Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Matthew here reminds his readers about this day when God the Father once again endorsed his only begotten son. 
This took place after the miraculous transfiguration when the father interrupted the apostle Peter and encouraged them to realize that the prophetic promises that we find in the writings of Moses and in the writings of the prophets, which are represented by Elijah here, all of those prophecies found in the Old Testament were actually pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point of the law and the prophets was to reveal the Messiah. And here the father is saying, here he is. My only begotten son, hear him, listen to Jesus, because Jesus is the Christ. In this way, God the Father doubled down on his confirmation that he gave back at the baptism scene. And not only did God the Father confirm his approval of the Lord Jesus on these two separate occasions, but he also testified a third time which occurred right after the triumphal entry of our Savior into Jerusalem. Now with this as the focus, continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus was that momentous moment when our Messiah was worshipped by those who came along and declared, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And this was a day that uh, had been revealed to Daniel. And we find that prophecy uh, back in the book of Daniel. But it was shortly after the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ when the Father audibly confirmed Jesus a third time. And with this context in mind, if you would look with me here at John chapter 12, I want to begin reading at verse 23 where the apostle tells us that Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God the Father here again is testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And the Father is saying, I've already glorified your name and I will glorify it again. The father verified the identity of his only begotten son three times with audible confirmation. The first time, it was there at the Savior's baptism. The second time, it was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And finally, shortly after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, God the Father confirmed the identity of Christ Jesus. And he promised to restore Jesus to the same glory that he had with the Father before the Incarnation. We'll consider more about that in our third point. For now, it's important to understand the significance of this heavenly confirmation. And with this, I want to consider something that Peter wrote in his second epistle. So continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of Peter's second epistle, I want to take a moment to point out that anyone can claim to be the Messiah. It's easy. Anyone can say they're the Messiah. And many people have made the claim. <clears throat> the question is this. 
How many of those who have claimed to be the Messiah received an audible confirmation from God the Father? Only one that I'm aware of. Jesus Christ is the only one who has received audible confirmation on three occasions that he is the Messiah. And according to Peter, the testimony of the Father has confirmed the messianic identity of our Savior Jesus. Let's consider how Peter puts it here in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 16. Here Peter declares, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here in these verses we find Peter, he's helping his audience to understand that the testimony of God the Father, which took place there on the Mount of Transfiguration, it provided us with that audible confirmation that Jesus is in fact the only begotten Son of God. And not only that, but the testimony of God the Father has also confirmed the prophetic word of the Holy Spirit, which again confirms the fact of who Jesus is. And what this means then is that every Christian can have great confidence in knowing that the testimonies that we find here with Within the Holy Bible, they've been confirmed by the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. We know then that the Father has audibly confirmed that Jesus is his only begotten Son. And this brings us to our third point. Because listen, the testimony of the Trinity not only includes the revelation of the Spirit, and the testimony of the Trinity not only includes the confirmation of the Father, but the testimony of the Trinity also includes the submission of the Son. And with this as our focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 3. Here we find Luke. He's drawing our attention now to the testimony that the Son of God presented through his submission. If you would, let's back up and look again at Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Here again, Luke writes, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now as we take one more look at these verses, we must not lose sight of the fact that the son of God was quick to submit himself to the will of his heavenly father. The father saying, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why is the father well pleased in the son? Because the son is submitting to the will of his heavenly father. We know that this is the case because it was obedience that led Jesus to go and receive the baptism of John. Jesus received the water baptism of John so that the Father and the Spirit could confirm that he was the Christ. Remember, the Father told John to go and baptize in water so that when the Holy Spirit descended upon him, he would know who the Christ was. Therefore, Jesus had to obey the Father and go be baptized so that he could be revealed. And so it was necessary for Jesus to go and receive water baptism so that he could be revealed by both the Father and the Spirit. At the same time, 
It was also necessary for Jesus to receive the water baptism of John because it was necessary for him to accomplish every ordinance required of those who serve in the position of high priest. In order to explain what I mean, I want to consider Matthew's account of the day when Jesus received the baptism of John. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, well, I should take a moment to remind you about the Levitical law, which required every priest to be consecrated with a ceremonial washing before they could even begin to serve the Lord at the tabernacle and then afterwards at the temple. In light of this requirement, it's important to remember that Jesus was sent to serve as our perfect high priest. Paul confirms this incredible truth in his letter to the Hebrew believers where he assures his audience that the Lord Jesus was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus was sent to serve as a high priest. God the Father sent his only begotten son to fulfill the position of high priest so that he could intercede on our behalf and he did this by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But before he could begin his ministry as our holy high priest, it was first necessary for him to receive the ceremonial washings required of every priest. With all of this in mind, look with me here at Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 13. Here we learn that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you, are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to do what? To fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus encouraging John to realize that it was necessary for him to receive this water baptism so that he could fulfill all righteousness. Did Jesus need to be baptized because he had sinned? No, of course not. Jesus is sinless. And so why is this necessary to fulfill all righteousness? Well, because Jesus is our high priest. And every high priest must begin with a ceremonial washing. Jesus received the ceremonial cleansing before beginning his priestly ministry. And in this way, he was demonstrating submission to the will of God the Father. At the same time, it's also important for us to understand that this wasn't his first demonstration of submission to the Father. In order to prove my point, we should remember what the Apostle John wrote in, in, in the first chapter of his gospel. It's in John chapter 1 where he tells us that it was in the beginning uh, there was the word... Uh, The Greek word is logos, and the word or logos was with God, showing there's some sort of distinction. But then John tells us that the word was God. The word was with God, and the word was God. He, the logos, was in the beginning with God, but then John tells us that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, for the sake of clarity, you should know that John is writing about the pre-incarnate deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The proof of this is found in the same chapter. It's John chapter 1, verse 14, where the apostle goes on to tell us that the word, or the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the word who was in the beginning became flesh. The word who created all things took on humanity. The word who was with God and was God came and dwelt among us so that we could see the glory of the Father. For this reason, the prophet Isaiah referred to the Messiah with the title Emmanuel, which I'll remind you means God with us. God with us. Now, I can't fully explain how the divine word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. I can't explain that any more than I can explain how there's three persons in one God. But what we do know is that the Holy Spirit placed the supernatural seed of the word into the womb of the Virgin Mary, and nine months later she gave birth to the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. In order to further prove my point, let's continue making our way through Luke chapter 3. If you would look with me here at Luke 3, beginning at verse 23. Here Luke declares now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of, now you want to say Jose there, but it's really Josie, uh, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menon, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and who? The son of God. The son of God. Here in these verses, we find Luke reminding his readers about the two natures of our Savior. Jesus was both a human descendant of Adam, and at the same time, he is the Son of God. This genealogy provides us with not only a list of really fun names to pronounce, but it provides us with proof that our Savior could trace his lineage from Mary through David back to Adam. And I realize that this genealogy begins with the statement that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. But that statement, as was supposed the son of Joseph, it, it helps us to understand that this is not Joseph's genealogy. And one reason why I know this is because Joseph's genealogy is actually found in the Gospel of Matthew, and that genealogy is slightly different from the one that we find here. So whose genealogy is this? 
It's Jesus' genealogy. Remember, Joseph isn't the father of Jesus. He's just the adoptive father of Jesus. Mary is the mother of Jesus' humanity. And so this genealogy helps us to see the bloodline of our Savior's humanity as being traced all the way through David and back to Adam. But then Luke concludes this chapter by including the fact that Jesus is not only a descendant of Adam through the line of David, but he is the son of God. Jesus is the human incarnation of the divine word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And according to Paul, the physical incarnation of Jesus was evidence of his submission to the father. With this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. So uh, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Philippians, I want to take a moment to point out that the word submission is not exactly the same as the word subordination. Oh, sure, uh, they're synonymous to, to a certain degree. But there is a difference between submission and subordination. You see, the word subordination is based on the idea of an inferior submitting to a superior. And while it's true that the word subordination includes this idea of submission, it's also true that submission can also occur between two parties who stand on equal ground. You can have two equals, and one can choose to submit to the will of the other without subordination, but rather simple submission. And we see this happening within the relationship of the father and the son. In order to prove my point, look with me here at Philippians chapter 2. I want to draw your attention there to verse 6. Here, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus was in the form of God, and yet he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. He didn't consider it robbery, though, to be equal with God, but but verse 7, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here in these verses we find Paul describing the pre-incarnate deity of Jesus as being equal with God the Father. And therefore, when Jesus submit himself through the incarnation, it wasn't because he was inferior to the Father. The incarnation of Christ wasn't a subordination of an inferior to a superior. No, instead, this was the submission of our infinite Savior who showed that he was willing to humble himself and submit to the will of God the Father so that sinners like us could be saved by faith in his substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I realize that there's times when Jesus says, hey, my Father's greater than I. But again, that's not based in subordination. It's because he chose to submit to the will of God the Father so that we could be saved. Now that he has offered himself a sacrifice for our sins, and now that he has risen up from the grave, the submission of the Son stands as a testimony forevermore through his exaltation. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Philippians chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 9 there where Paul declares, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above most names? No. 
He has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here is helping his audience to understand that the submission of God the Son, by which he clothed himself with the frailty of humanity, which resulted in his crucifixion and then resurrection, was finalized in his glorification and subsequent exaltation. And his exaltation now stands as a testimony of the Father's glory for the rest of eternity. And now he's received that name, which is a testimony of, of his fame, which is high above every other name. Now that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place in heaven, we can be confident in the testimony that he presented on the day he laid his life down. And we can be confident in the promise that he made when he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now as we begin to wrap up this message, there should be no doubt in our minds that the doctrine of the Trinity is true. As we take into consideration all of these scriptures, there is no doubt in my mind that the Bible provides us with a basis for believing in the Trinity of God. And while I still can't explain how one God eternally exists in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to sit up here and talk about eggs and clover leaves and these sorts of things that all break down at some point in time, we just have to believe that there is one God who has revealed himself existing eternally in co-equal persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can rejoice in knowing that all three persons of the triune God had have testified to the fact that Jesus is our Savior. This can be seen in the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's in the revelation of the Spirit who descended in the form of a dove. This testimony can be seen in the confirmation of the Father who audibly confirmed the identity of his only begotten Son. And this testimony can be seen in the submission of the Son who humbly submit himself through the physical incarnation which culminated in his crucifixion, resurrection, and followed by his glorification unto exaltation. In light of these truths, I encourage every Christian to accept the testimony of the Trinity. And not only should we accept the testimony of the Trinity, but we should also remember that the Father is the one who has highly exalted Jesus and given him that name which is above every other name. And according to the Father, it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow, no matter where you are. Of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and knowing that God the Father has exalted his son to this level, let's make sure that we too are exalting the name of Jesus above every name. You might have a favorite sports hero. You might have your favorite musician. Uh, you might have your favorite person. Maybe they're even in this room. Maybe, maybe he's standing on stage right now. Maybe, I don't know. I have no idea. There's no name that deserves exaltation above Jesus Christ. Jesus has the name above every name. And it's also important for us to understand that every knee is eventually going to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, we've been given the choice. 
Not whether we're going to bow, but when we're going to bow. Every knee is going to bow, but we have the choice. We can either bow a knee here in this life unto salvation, or we can wait. And we can bow a knee before the Lord at the great white throne judgment just before being cast into the lake that burns with fire forevermore. Every knee is going to bow. And with that being the case, I encourage you to bow a knee today unto salvation so that you can escape the punishment which will eventually come upon those who will eventually be forced to bow a knee before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, I want to remind you that the testimony of the triune God, it helps us to understand that each person within the Godhead had their part to play in our salvation and in our sanctification. With that being the case, I encourage every Christian to walk by faith in the, in the triune nature of God. As we walk by faith with God, let's make sure that we're walking by faith in the triune nature of God. And in this way, we will learn to become those believers who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the sacrifice of the only begotten Son, Jesus, and all for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.